Hi, and welcome to the K-12 Tech Talk podcast. This is episode 80. In this episode, we have a listener email from Bill in Washington State telling us about a recent DDoS attack. Chris is out this week, so we have a very special guest sitting in for Chris, Sharyar Kazi, the retired CIO from LA Unified. It's a great interview with him. We really appreciate the time that he spent with us tonight. Have a listen. This is K-12 Tech Talk. K-12 Tech Talk. The podcast by K-12 Techs for K-12 Techs. Real conversations, real arguments, and real banter on trending K-12 technology topics and issues. Live from the somethingcool.com studios, this is the K-12 Tech Talk podcast. I am Josh with me tonight is host, co-host Mark. Chris is absent. He is in the middle of Oklahoma, I think, somewhere. And we have a very special guest tonight. Uh, we will let him talk about his background in a few minutes, but I'll go ahead and introduce him now. We have with us Shariar from the West Coast. He's a recent retiree who I am totally jealous of, right? <laughs> um, so we'll we'll get into his background in a few minutes. Uh it's been an interesting, we had a listener email that I'll, I'll jump into real quick here. Um, listener Bill from the state of Washington. We, we won't go any uh, more detail than that, but listener Bill emailed us and told us a story that uh, last week, one day last week, late last week, he noticed in his firewall logs that he was DDoSed real quick from an IP address that was geolocated to uh, Russian Federation IP address range. Now, whether or not you can trust that geolocation, that's kind of up in the air at times. Um, but he it, he it stuck out to him. It was an anomaly in his log. <clears throat> and um, it went away quick, no big deal, didn't cause an outage, didn't cause a disruption. Well, yesterday, that IP address came back and initiated another DDoS attack attempt, um, this time a little bit extended and quite a bit more traffic, uh, over 5,000 hits on each of the uh, attempts. And uh, like like Bill said in his email, he's like, you know, the, the firewall did its job. It, it ate it up and spit it out. No big deal. Didn't really cause a disruption to the network. But his concern is last week they came, they hit it once. They waited about seven, eight days. They come back and they hit it even harder to see, okay, what's going to happen now? So the question is, and, and Bill's worry is, do they come back again a third time in another week or two and hit it even harder to see what's happened? Um, Mark, I think you talked, you you guys have been targeted target of DDoS attacks before in the past, right? Yeah, that, that pattern is very familiar. There was, um, we've had a few in the past and, and when you start to see a probe, a very, very short probe, almost, you know, a minute or less of, of high traffic. Uh, and then a day, a week, maybe a month later, you see a much high, higher surge. For us, it was actually right on the dot, like at the top of an hour, huh. where we saw a small surge. And then the next, maybe the next day or a few days later, a very stronger surge. Again, right at the exact hour, which was interesting. But it took us a long time to figure out that this is... Uh, this isn't some kind of problem inside. You, you're always, when you're seeing a flood of traffic, you don't quite know what's going on. So, right. it, you know... It, we weren't thinking this was an outside probe. Well, um, and so. my experience, we it happened to us a couple different times, and both of them were student-initiated events. Um, and we really didn't know, 
you know, our, my team's small enough. We were out doing things. One was on the second day of school or first day of school. Um, we were out assisting with just back to school function, making thing, making sure things are going okay. And the next thing we know, the internet's down, you know, stuff won't load. And that was our first tip at it. Um, long story short, it was a stu- student initiated event. We fi- luckily figured out who the student was just purely by chance. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things in the, in that heat of the moment when, okay, all of a sudden, all I know is the internet isn't working. Is it DNS? Because it's always DNS. Mm-hmm. Is it, a, is it a DDoS attack? Is it some sort of, you know, physical layer problem? Is there a cut somewhere? Um, so yeah, DDoS, DDoS is not fun. And it's one of those things that can be super, super expensive to mitigate against. Yeah. Um, it's a couple so, of options too. And I think, uh, yeah. you know, the, some of the larger districts are investing in uh, heavier firewalls. Next gen firewall really is, yep. is one of the key items that you can have on your network. But some of the smaller districts, I'm seeing a lot of people asking for this kind of service within their ISP. So if you yep. can get this through your ISP, that would be ideal because it's one less piece of hardware to manage. Yeah. And if, if <clears throat> Spectrum, if you're listening, you seriously need to lower your DDoS mitigation costs for school <laughs> districts because it is ridiculous. Um, it's, it is, I think, three times more expensive than what our circuit costs per month. Um, now, I, I will say this, and this is a good intro. So if you have a next-gen firewall or and if you have a service provider providing this to you, make sure that they're fully aware of your needs and your traffic because as we sure. found out a long time ago not so long ago, maybe a year ago, <laughs> when suddenly all of our classrooms started to use Zoom at school, uh, we found that our, our service provider who was doing the next-gen firewalls actually didn't, didn't quite understand the traffic enough and was actually blocking that type of oh, traffic. Oh, wow. So uh, one of the people that I reached out to is the person here on the call. Uh, so good segue, Shariar is Shariar Kazai is a good friend of mine. I have known him for many years and he is the one that I call when I can't figure out why I keep DDoSing myself. Uh, <laughs> and I've worked with him on a number of projects uh, and I, I really have enormous respect for him, both from his experience as well as his humbleness. So Shariar, if you want to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about your background. All right. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, actually, feelings are mutual. I, I always uh, count on Mark for his insights, technical uh, 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 knowledge and uh, he's always really good at identifying really good products. Uh, sometimes he has paid the penalty for it because then, the, <laughs> wait, then, wait. The, the, then the LA the LA goes and buys all the entire stock available <laughs> <and> nationally. <laughs> now it's nothing left. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Is this the real reason why Mark wanted to have you on Shariar? Is that you know kind of <laughs> talk good about him and make him make him feel because we kind of give Mark a hard no. time at times. Mm. Okay, okay. So yeah, give us give us some background. What what have you been through? And sure, sure. Well, I probably um, well I started working for LA Unified School District a couple of years out of college in 1984, probably before some of you guys were born. Wow. Uh, I started. I have an engineering degree. I went to Washington State University, got a mechanical engineering degree, and early early 80s, it was uh, a lot of energy conservation efforts going on, kind of back to where we are we are now. Um, and I got a job at the district uh, as an energy engineer and uh, uh, started managing district's utility budget. LA Unified hmm. is, most of you know, largest, second largest school district in the country. At the time, we had a 
$30 million utility budget. So I, I learned the ins and outs of the accounting, the finances district, uh, worked there for about four years and then joined facilities as a junior project manager. And that was when my uh, work with technology started. Uh, basically, I was a very classic shadow IT. I, I had access to a mini computer that the uh, that the IT department maintained, but I had full access to it. Uh, and uh, so I, and the language was pretty simple. I had a, a gentleman who knew the language and he got me into it and he taught me how to program there. And uh, I just took off with it. And for 10 years, I was developing uh, and automating processes in the facilities for their project management, oh, cool. project tracking. Uh, so after 10 years, I moved into IT, officially into IT, and then just slowly moved up the ranks there, uh, implemented the, the, the student data warehouse at the district, um, <clears throat> shifted over to um, uh, infrastructure. I was deputy CIO and uh, managed the, the infrastructure side of the district, you know, about 1,100 sites. Uh, we always equaled our, our name, uh, network infrastructure to U.S. Navy, about 30,000 plus uh, oh. network appliances, wow. about 90,000 access points. So a lot to brag about, but it was a pretty giant environment. Um, Holy our, cow. Um, yeah, appliances that we would buy were ISB grade type appliances. Sure. It was pretty, pretty big. Um, so um, managed that. And then last four years of my career, I was the CIO there, uh, which was the most fun years. Uh, <laughs> I had uh, worked uh, many years with the rank and file in the district. So I had built relationships with the cabinet members and it was really great to be able to work with them. Always uh, uh, try to provide good service to them. So, but it is a, it is a large organization. It's complex, it's political. Um, and um, uh, still have to fight shadow ITs of you know, myself, you know, in different departments. Um, but overall, it is managed centrally. The school service is managed centrally, which is really great. Um, and the, the organization has grown quite a bit. Uh, when I left, I had about 700 IT staff under Holy me, uh, including the field service. And now I think they're going over a thousand. They have tripled the they, because of COVID and the one-to-one -one district wide, they have increased the the field services to over 300. Uh, so it's a it's a fairly it's a pretty good organization. Nice thing about it is you can always find the resource that you're looking for because sure. there's plenty of people out there, and they're eager, anxious to to move up and uh, take advantage of opportunities. So I can say nothing but good things about the opportunity I had, especially as a, as a first-generation immigrant, it was great to be able to work for an organization like that and have the opportunity. So That's amazing. So um, in, inform me, enlighten me, give me an estimate. How many students does LA Unified have total? It has declined quite a bit. Uh, over right now, we're, I think, somewhere around 450 uh, plus, 450,000 plus uh, about 100 and 50,000 or so charter schools, if oh, I'm interesting. not wrong. Okay. 
But uh, when I was there at the peak about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we were pushing about 750,000 students. Wow. Uh, uh, so there are a lot of vacant classrooms there right now. Uh, and I, I think that's a, something that a lot of the districts, urban districts across the country are experiencing. Yeah. Enrollment for various reasons. Yeah, so, I've always I always felt LA is a is Boston with a magnitude of ten. So you have ten times as many teachers as us, ten times as many students. You're you're sent the, the I've never been there, but I, I would love to see your central office because no kidding. How big is it, Charyar? Well, it's a well. There's a, the main office is in downtown LA. It's a it's a high rise, twenty nine story high rise building. Wow! <laughs> wow! <laughs> about three thousand. Yeah, there are about three thousand people there. Uh, it it's very interesting. Uh, it's uh, you know a lot of um, departments are in different floors, so you really have to make an effort to uh, to go and meet with the cab you know department heads sure. and build relationship and and work with them. But there are also satellites. Uh, satellite we have we have local districts, uh, seven local districts uh, that uh, do the administrative and instructional focused in the about 120 to 190 schools each. Uh, right. So uh, there's also some, some of that decentralized kind of a model in place. So being, being there as long as you were and coming up from that rank and file, which is a fantastic story, um, you know, starting out in, in facilities and, and moving into IT and then and coming up that rank like that, you have seen a, a complete change in, in education infrastructure education modalities. Um, talk about that for a minute. How, what was that transformation like? And I guess probably in the last 10 years, it was even faster and bigger and, and more money spent and infrastructure overhauls to meet that one-to-one expectation and need. Um, talk about, talk about that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, uh, I mean, we have gone from just a classic, uh, you know, legacy ERP to a more of an integrated. We did a full implementation of SAP. It took quite a bit, and it was quite controversial at the beginning. Payroll system didn't go well, and it had some major issues. Uh, but right now, there's a full suite of, uh, uh, you know, uh, modules of SAP that's in the works for the business side. Um, but... Um, I think I think the biggest challenge that came talk about infrastructure was when when the districts decided to go forward and use local obligation bonds uh, to go one on one district wide. And those of you who track uh, news about K twelve was that big iPad yeah. uh, uh, deployment that we had in LA and. And, and uh, the challenges were devices were consumer devices and, they, yeah. and we weren't, didn't have the right tools to be able to secure those devices. And that's what caused a lot of the controversy in the media and students being able to remove the filters from the devices and so on. But overall, we still distributed 100,000 iPads to the students. The project were, went on hold, but along with that uh, initiative, we were very lucky to to get the allocation about 300 plus million dollars to do full infrastructure upgrade wi-fi a wireless upgrade across all of our schools wow and that took about four years three years four years to implement um and it's a kind of a funny incident related to that that i think it would be uh, fun to to mention 
um, we had a lot of pushback from, and you know, parents were concerned about the Wi-Fi signal, you know, the radiation from oh, really? the Wi-Fi access, access points. Yeah. And they would come to our board and they would complain. So we worked with our environmental health and safety department and, and uh, they did, they brought these very fancy equipment and they did some measurements and they said, well, you know, uh, you need to tone down the, the access points. Uh, intensity of the radio, you know, the the signal, right? And you have to to turn it down. And um, the gentleman who was in charge of our uh, infrastructure uh, group, he used that as an excuse to justify two access points per classroom. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so so we took advantage of the of the of of this, and now the district actually has two access points per classroom wow. district wide. Uh, which gives us that redundancy, and it also gives us the throughput that you know that that we need. Sure. Uh, so so that that was a big big change, and then along with that, uh, we also invested in in a software layer part of the infrastructure, which is usually was quite expensive. I spent about ten percent of my my budget on that. It was like a thirty forty million dollar investment in. Um, and I know I can mention I can mention product names. We we were using uh, Aruba's Airways and Clearpass. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and the the way we implemented that was was really great because you can you can today walk from one school to the other anywhere in the district and seamlessly connect to the Wi-Fi uh, yeah. because you're authenticated. We could differentiate between the students and the and the faculty and be able to filter differently. So we did. You know that investment of bond funds. We really took advantage of that to be able to to improve the the environment and also provide outdoor access. And now it's going through its refresh. That's but awesome. Then, Are they moving um, to ClearPass? Do you know? Um, I think they were sticking with it with Are with they? ClearPass. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was at the time the largest implementation in the world of ClearPass. Holy um, cow! Aruba was very uh, very proud of it. <clears throat> but right now it's a mix of Cisco and Aruba in the oh, district in terms of wireless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the district always wanted to spread the, the wealth. The wealth. So, <laughs> across the, okay. Yeah. Let me, let, let's just take a pause real quick. And, and this is a great segue into a, into a sponsor, Aruba uh, HP. <clears throat> it's a proud sponsor of this podcast. They've been with us since the start. We super appreciate that. And, and you just heard the words from uh, Sharyar there. And, and that was unsolicited. I, I had no clue what his infrastructure was. That was, We did not bring him on for that reason. But uh, I, I've been an Aruba user for, geez, probably close to 15 years now, almost 20 years. I'm showing my age. Um, they we I've ripped out a Cisco install, an old Aeronet install, and, and put in Aruba. Um, that, that was my first experience with it uh, years ago. Uh, and I've stuck with them since. They're a solid product. Um, I have not made the jump to ClearPass because uh, compared to Shariar, I have a postage stamp size of an infrastructure. Um, we just don't have the need for that yet, but it is definitely on my radar. So if, if you're looking at um, or have a need for a NAC type solution, needing to apply uh, ACLs and user type profiles to your wireless clients, definitely check out ClearPass. Definitely check out Aruba wireless access points and Aruba networking infrastructure. Um, I got some sad news. My local 
sales rep, Chris Illingsworth, who is, uh, we've talked about him many times on the show. We've joked about Chris several times. Um, he is leaving Aruba. I'm, I'm kind of upset about that. Um, but we wish, we wish him the best. He's going to another vendor that I use, so I'll still see him. Uh, but I was kind of caught off guard by that this week. So mm. check out Aruba HP. And if you're in the Missouri area, check out Provision Data Solutions. Uh, they are uh, our local reseller of Aruba product. <clears throat> um, so, so I, I want to ask, you just, you just spent 10 minutes making every listener just jealous of all the resources and tools and <laughs> yeah, stuff you have yeah. and, and you are, you, you got everything you need, but in a large district like, like LA, there are problems that you, that are unique to you guys that, that, that may not hit the smaller districts. So can you talk about some of the challenges that you have in your role or in a district like LA? I think um, uh, we call it breadth and depth. You know, there's, there's the scale and then there's the complexity and both exist at, in, in LA. Uh, we, uh, and we, we just don't, don't take it for granted what if it's a big name like SAP or, or Cisco or, or IBM or Aruba, HP. Uh, we, we absolutely need to do testing, stress testing, making sure that these appliances can handle uh, even, even uh, Palo Alto. Uh, 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 appliances, uh, we have had to uh, work very closely with them. So we always have a saying in, in LA, we say the good news is you have the LASD contract and the bad news is you have the LASD contract. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so we do challenge these products uh, and, 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 and as well as software. Uh, there have been cases where, you know, uh, the way the software is architected, Right. Uh, cannot handle 30,000 teachers uh, sure. logging in between 8 and 8.30 in the morning and taking attendance, all on the same, same instance. Yeah. Uh, so, so that due diligence really has to be there, and the protection has to be there, the piloting, and making sure that we're, uh, we're uh, really doing a, um, uh, a good, good evaluation of the product. Um, the other piece of it is, is because of our size, um, there's also, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of local uh, uh, local control and lo local uh, um, decision making. Uh, so the districts have a lot of flexibility. They, they, the schools have a lot of flexibility to purchase uh, and purchase products uh, 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 that that may not fit our infrastructure. Uh, they have either private accounts from donations from the parents. Uh, PTA funds, or they have, um, you know, P-card allowance to purchase, and they all, sometimes they take donations. So we have had to be really make an effort to, to, to uh, communicate with our schools that let us evaluate for you, let us right. help out, mm -hmm. uh, let us, uh, you know, we, we worked very co uh, closely with our chief academic officer and our chief procurement officer to establish a process to, to pre-approve uh, edtech products. Hmm. And um, so that schools can have a pick list. Uh, and then, you know, if they have something that is not on the list, we would put it through an evaluation and make sure that it complies with our single sign-on. You know, they can mm -hmm. handle rostering and so on. And, so, and uh, yeah, go ahead. That, that's, that's an interesting issue because that's something that I've, I 
have dealt with, you know, compared to you two, I'm, I'm a minuscule, minuscule school district. We have 3,100 students, but the, the idea of, of giving teachers the autonomy to be able to go out and select a product, a website, a, a tool that fits their need, because I, I mean, they should be able to do that, but it also needs to align with some of the standards that, that the district has set or adopted for interoperability to, to make things work the best and, and, and realistically efficiencies, right? Because it's all about saving time, even though Shariar, you had a massive staff of, you know, however many people you had in your IT department, time was still the most finite resource among that group. And with my three guys in my department, it's, it's the same. It comes down to time. Yeah. So how do you, how do you go about making sure those integrated solutions are kind of aligned? How, how, how does that process look? <laughs> a, a lot of, a lot of inner communication uh, yeah. and, and establishing trust uh, with the departments to get us involved as early as possible in the process uh, so that we can work mm -hmm. with them. Um, I think that's really key. Um, one of the uh, processes that I put in place was uh, when I when I became CIO was I scheduled the monthly meetings with the uh, each of the cabinet members, department heads, division heads, and uh, the meeting was was and I was very clear about it uh, right at the beginning uh, start. Um, it was it was all about what they needed from IT and what services IT was providing to them, rather than what IT needed from them, which was their perception when I scheduled the meetings. And I would walk in with a list of the projects. These are the projects that I'm working for, you know, I'm doing for you. And this is the department under you. And this is what we're doing. This is the status. And in, in many cases, they really were not aware that this hmm. was a kind of service we were providing. Right. And, and the second meeting and the third meeting, they started bringing their direct reports to the meeting. Because oh, they wanted, they, they liked that collaboration. And I started bringing my, my staff in the room. And, and it became really collaborative. They would have projects that maybe they didn't, that the division had felt it was not as, as a priority, or maybe there were projects that was not being discussed, uh, you know, with us early enough and would come to the, uh, up to the, in the discussion and, and we would start working with them. And then we would also, uh, uh, maybe another department that was doing something similar or that overlapped and mm -hmm. we would connect the two departments together. So that really established that trust. And then we started knowing, you know, that cross-functional, you know, collaboration and advanced, you know, knowledge that there are these plans that are, that are being made or, or uh, you know, projects that initiatives that they're working on that require support. I'm, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question directly or not, but that, that, is, that is one thing is being in the, in the, in the mainstream of things. Mm -hmm. uh, discussions, being involved, uh, sitting at the cabinet, and and that relationship and that uh, uh, channel, open channel of communication with the division heads, department heads, to be able to to be able to anticipate what's what's needed. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of systems and interoperability, I think um, I attended a a a Gardner conference about I think it was two thousand nine or so, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And it was all about enterprise architecture and uh, operational data stores and data hubs. And I really took that to heart. I, I, 
I knew that we needed to have a platform like that in place as these systems were proliferating and, and growing. And uh, we put that in place. Uh, I pulled in one of my uh, senior developers, really sharp guy, into the, uh, and, and assigned him to develop our, put our uh, 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 operational data store in place. We had a data warehouse, so it wasn't too difficult of a task, but we actually formally established an operational data store and then leveraged that as a data hub uh, so that uh, we would eliminate, slowly, slowly started eliminating point-to-point -point interfaces and made that data hub a provider, subscriber provider kind of gotcha. model. Gotcha, gotcha. It, it, is, it is still in place, it's still being leveraged, but then newer systems are starting to use more APIs and more of a, a, a kind of a direct connection right. uh, to receive the data more real time, like our SIS with our LMS has a, has a real time connection now. We, um, uh, we, yeah, we mentioned last week, Mark and I were kind of talking about this. Um, I came from the healthcare world before I was in education. And when I was there, HL7 interface engines really kind of broke into the market. And that was the that was a standardization from HIS systems, health information systems, dumping <clears throat> ADT admission, discharge, and transfer information out to ancillary systems like your pharmacy system, your mm -hmm. your ordering system, stuff like that. Your clean your housekeeping system, knowing when a, a, a room emptied to go clean the room, um, and that HL seven standard was what all what helped all of those talk. Uh, seamlessly. You know, you didn't have custom data streams going to each one of those. They all had, you know, patient identifier input date. So the the more of those systems that can align with a standard of what that data looks like and what, what data is included in that stream, the easier that becomes. You know, you have that one, that one interface engine that kind of spews that data out then. Um, I, I see that definitely as a, as a, the next one of the next trends in, in education if it already hasn't taken off yeah actually um that's one of the projects that i'm involved with uh there is a uh, uh non-profit organizations like east um colson council of great city schools um uh ccsso council of chief school uh, chief state school officers uh that they're working on their grant uh to to improve uh interoperability across the across the member districts we have um, I, I represent the council uh, great city schools in that initiative we have 20 districts that we work with and and trying to help the districts in terms of their maturity in hmm. in adopting interoperability uh, understanding it you know and, and you know foundationally you need to have more than just uh, interoperability between systems you know you have to work on governance you have to work right. on project management methodology you have to think about your data strategy uh, your procurement you know and having some control over what's coming in you know so have some some understanding and 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 it is a challenge uh, it is it is difficult um, edtech products uh, are not you know necessarily they don't necessarily think from those you know aspects when they develop their products right so so it's uh, it's it's challenging but there's a lot of effort going on project unicorn has great uh content available you know for districts that want to um um that want to adopt uh interoperability and start 
you know, whether it's you, you want to start from your data strategy or your governance, there's a lot of really good, good um, uh, material available for the districts to be able to um, uh, start uh, with, with, with those initiatives. Uh, even uh, so the, what we do with our district member districts that are participating in Colomar cohorts, we really don't want them to create a project called interoperability. You know, we want them to incorporate interoperability into their existing initiatives. And that's the best way to do it. You're replacing your SIS, put your, you know, project management, your governance in place, and then expand that across the, uh, your other initiatives. So use it as a tool and then expand it. It's a lot easier to be able to grow like that. Um, but um, the, the, the challenge is, I think, is the industry, getting the vendors to invest sure. uh, uh, in making their systems uh, more interoperable. Uh, there are some competing standards out there that needs to, they need to start playing better with each other you know, and try to, you know, it's all about speaking that same language, right? So right. it's, you know, um, uh, but, but it is improving. It is getting, it is getting better, but it's, well, it's an uphill battle. <laughs> the way that I see it playing out, and I think you can look historically and see this, it, all it, all it really takes is for several big key players, LA Unified, you know, some other massive school districts to jump on and say, okay, look, this is, this is the expectation that our district has and 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 we five six big districts in the country have all aligned in with these same expectations i i think that's when you'll start to see those vendors kind of okay you know you got the big boys are doing it or this is what these guys want we're gonna we're gonna fall in line there well Um, but i i think part of it is uh the the big guys start to open the door up but it's it's everybody doing this at sure. the same time. That's what keeps the door open. And so, you know, we've had, you know, we've had rollouts and, and uh, procurements where the company said, well, we're not quite ready for, you know, our, our, our big pushes around EdFi. We're not there yet, but I guess if you need it, we'll build it for you. And then build a custom integration specifically for you. They're not building this thing for the industry. Right. They're building it to hit your needs. And I think that's going to happen in the large districts is they're saying, I got to keep this customer. I want to, I want to win this bid. So I'll do what I need to make them happy. Right. But they're not necessarily serving the larger community. I would rather see larger numbers of districts and, it, and the size is irrelevant, larger number of districts asking for it constantly on, on bids and procurements so then the salesmen start to say, hey, what is this interoperability right. thing? What is this standard? Right. I should bring that back because this is what customers are asking for. Well, and I, I think it, a, a similar conclusion could be drawn with the Student Data Privacy Alliance. You know, that that kind of fledged along for a while, you know, kind of struggled to get off the ground. But now every state has an agreement, it seems like, with with the Student Data Privacy Alliance. I know California has massive agreements in there. Um, Missouri is now starting to, to take hold and, and starting to do that. Um, I, I think it's it's a similar play or you're going to see a similar track there. Um, it just, it takes more, like you said, Mark, more people to kind of jump on board and want to do that to where now when we sign a contract with a with a vendor that's housing student data and I mention, hey, by the way, we want this this agreement signed. They're like, oh, yeah, it's the 
that's the standard national student data privacy agreement. Yeah, we've signed that a hundred times already. We, no big deal. So right. it it just needs to become a commonplace to where they're used to hearing that term or used to complying with that request. Yeah, totally agree. I think, um, but there has to be there's some form of a mandate sure. in place. Healthcare benefited from the mandate. Privacy yep. is benefiting from mandate. And I think there is inconsistency state by state. You know, the state, you know, if you ever, you know, were on the vendor side and try to manage, you know, do an SIS system and try to comply with right. state requirements across 50 states, no way. It is right. it is so difficult to do that. And that is why some of these interoperability platforms like EdFi is challenging because the SIS implementation is different from one district to the other. Yep. And mm -hmm. so when you start leveraging the out-of-the-box APIs to build that inter, uh, interoperability you know, features, you have to do a lot of work to make it work. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that inconsistency, I think, is also one of the challenging parts of this uh, that, that I think healthcare has, has, had, has addressed and is a yeah. lot more mature about than, uh, than education. Yeah. yeah it, it, we have to get to the point where these solutions are a little more turnkey uh, for people to be able to adopt them. And they are, they are, you know, things like Clever and Classlink make these kinds of things very, very easy and quick to adopt yeah. right? Um, new tools, but they're very surface level. Like we're talking about, you know, a deeper level of integration that some of our systems are needing. And, and right now there's just not a, uh, a strong enough push or a turnkey solution for those things. Well, yeah. I, I hate to go come ahead, back to the, to the small school, big school thing, but you're, you're right for, for my school district to implement something like that, that would likely take an FTE or a couple FTEs to do that, that's that's a non-starter. You know, it, it has to be a solution. You know, we're leveraging Clever. It's because it's so stinking easy to go in and create an account. Okay, my sys has an automated export pre-built for that. Sure, turn it on, away we go. Now, now we're using Clever. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I listened to Sharyar talk about having SAP and all these other you know, business model or business type solutions. And when you're, at, when you're in a district that large, and both of you are probably in this shoe, your district is, is more or less ran as a business because it is so large and has an economy of its own that it, it leverages business tools because it, it really has a business need where smaller schools, it's a little easier to not need to jump into that requirement or that need for SAP or that, you know, those business model type solutions. I, that's one of the reasons I sent that article to Mark was, you know, interoperability versus integration, right? And where's the business value? And at what point do you, do you really want to adopt a full, you know, seamless integration between the systems? And do you want to pick and choose? You know, when I was looking at my suite of products, I would say, well, which one of my applications really need real-time integration between them? And the only one that came the closest to was my LMS and my SIS. Because what the teachers wanted was, if the student is enrolled in the morning, I want to assign them yep. homework in the afternoon. So I want that students in the LMS system. So we started running the interfaces more frequently and there's no, now more, more of a interoperable, you know, kind of a, a real-time integration between the two. But, but, but you have to look at the business value, as you said, in a small district, and I don't want to get all the, the, all the standards organizations upset <laughs> with me, but you have to be realistic about it. Right. You know, the clever solution is an integration, 
right? You mm -hmm. give them a file, they load right. the file. So they right. work as an in-between a translator, right? Once a day. <laughs> and, and, you know, right, right, right. Once a day. And do you really need it more than once a day? So that's a good debate to have uh, at a deeper level as well is that, you know, do you really need to impose that across the board or can you pick and choose, uh, you know, on which applications need that? I, I have a great example for that. You know, Clever is once a day. Uh, our student information system has a method to sync with Google Classroom uh, student rosters, and that happens once a day. It's, it's overnight. Well, we have um, our, our in-school suspension teacher has a need that there something might happen during the day and a student or two or three get assigned to his class in school suspension halfway through the day. Well, we have monitoring tools to where he can see what they're doing that don't get updated until at night. So he there's there is a real legitimate need for that real time transactional type mm -hmm. roster change. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how really, we get there though. It, it, it's a it's a very big lift to get to that point because we have we still have vendors who will come in and say to 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 me or to you know during a sales pitch, oh we're interoperable with such and such. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we'll drop a CSV right. and we'll ingest a CSV. That's not interoperability. That is integration, right? You are you are saying this system is going to spit out a file. It's going to sit on a server. Maybe it might go directly to the system. But one system's language is different from the other system's language. And at best case scenario, they, they could take the file as is. But more often than not, it has to be extracted, transformed, and loaded back into another system, which is really just the equivalent of, you know, it's a modern day person saying typing from one screen right. to the next. Right. That's, you know, that's the, the, when we were talking the other day about integration versus interoperability, that's integration. And that's where our industry is right now. Interoperability says this system speaks the same language as the other one. There is no intermediary. There is no in-between. And that's where the medical industry has said, let's settle the language first and the technology will follow. And meanwhile, here we are trying to fit technology or uh, languages into technology that's already there yeah. and not changing. And I think part of that too, because some of the things we struggle with is with our student or student information system, a lot of time that integration is one way where right. to, to get data back is the struggle. Like we have a transportation system. We can send rostering information mm -hmm. and, and student addresses to that transportation system all day long, but we can't without manual manipulation by me receive route, you know, Johnny and Susie are on route B. Okay, I need to know that in the student information system. The, the teacher needs to be able to see that. Well, the only way that gets updated is I download a CSV from the transportation system and then upload it into our student information system. That, and, and the really frustrating thing is they're owned by the same parent company. Um, that, that, that's <laughs> the pinch point right now. Um, and I'm sure half of you out there know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, that's, that's the frustration the frustrating thing that I see with education right now is there's too many of those systems that they do great at one-way communication. That two-way communication, getting information back really, really is a struggle. Like it was, it was uh, shock and awe when we figured out or when, when our student information system allowed 
Google to pass grades back to the student information system with a click of a button because we had we had faculty that were, you know, okay, you got an A in in classroom. I'm going to go type an A in sys. Disaster. You know, things get misaligned. Horrible. Now they click a button and it and it just comes over. That that's night and day difference. That two way communication. You know what what you just did is what people underestimate is the complexity of the IT in K twelve education. Sure, you have an entire uh, you know business side that is very seldom is talked about. Uh, transportation, food services, uh, facilities. Uh, you have the, uh, the the classic ERP, HR, payroll, finance, procurement, and and. And, and, and all of that, and then on top of that, you have the SIS and the LMS and the special ed right. and, and the assessment systems and, right. and the grade book. And you put all this, you know, you tell me which organization has this broad and variety of systems to have to maintain and also integrate and, mm-hmm. and, and, and manage. So it is, it is a complex infrastructure. And I think... Um, uh, even small districts have to do that. You still have yeah. to transport your kids. You still have to feed your kids. Yep. And all of this, all of these project uh, systems are all federally funded. They have very strict guidelines that have right. to be adhered to and and have to be managed. Yeah, yeah, it's it's one of the things too that you know, Josh. You can you can look at the large districts and say, "Oh, I'm jealous of this or that." We look at the small the districts and say. I think Shire is getting a fire drill here. <laughs> uh, we look at the small districts and say like, but our, our struggle is actually, it starts with the people and getting the people into the same room and getting them right. into the right mindset. Whereas in the small districts, it's not that hard. You can physically get all the people from a project into a room. You can have, and, and I, I, this sounds crazy, but you can have a meeting with all of your teachers in one room. Yeah, that's that cannot happen in our districts, right? Yeah. So you have to depend on person-to-person communication as well, and that's where, you know, you get these things like shadow IT, which I want to have Sharyar talk about that one. He talks about it a lot, uh, to or he has warned us a lot in the industry about it, and, and you start to hear his background. He was the shadow IT problem right. in LA, right? Right. Um, but being able to understand the needs of schools, of teachers, of principals. And being able to meet those needs first and foremost, I think is a people problem and a process problem. Sure. Um, before we can find a technology solution. And, and you always hear the, you know, the the phrase people process and then technology. Oftentimes we look for a technical solution, but this is a this is an adaptive issue. This is a well, lot about yeah. And from a from a people standpoint, you have to get everybody on the same page. Because if 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 expectations are different and you've got a group of, you know, in my situation, we've got four principles. If, if expectations are different for each of the principles, you've got to solve that problem first, or at least, at least set a boundary first, and then you can find a technological solution for that. Um, And that's just exponentially harder for you guys with, you know, herding cats for the however many thousands of principles you guys have. Um, Yeah. I couldn't imagine. But I like I would like to be Sharyar and be able to call up Aruba and say, hey, I need, you know, 2000 
Aruba 515s tomorrow and have them show up with FedEx with a smile the next day. Um, does does not happen that way. I can, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a fraction of Shariar's size and I've still been in the position where I'm tracking a shipping container going across the ocean with, with stuff in it. So it yeah. has, yeah, it, I think these last few years it hasn't been easy, especially no. this last year. It hasn't been easy. Yeah, I no. definitely feel um, for the. Quickly, let me talk about uh, our other sponsor tonight, Infoblox. Infoblox, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, I'd been in IT for actually just over 20 years. Uh, Infoblox has been in the market for 20 years. And what do they do? They've got an interesting name. Their name really doesn't tell you what they do. Um, you know, the old adage, I mentioned it earlier that it's, it's yes, it's always DNS when there's an issue or an outage. Infoblox does DNS. They do other things like IPAM and, and some security stuff, but Infoblox does DNS and they've been doing DNS for 20 years. They can help you do DNS better. If that means the security solution that will verify that it's only really DNS traffic transversing uh, your DNS protocols, leaving your network and not a uh, data exfiltration event uh, leaving on a, on a DNS protocol, that they do that. It could be IPAM management. It could be uh, DNS DDoS protection, which Bill, our listener in Washington, might might be able to, to leverage. Um, Infoblox does that too. They've got a, a solutions for on-prem, hosted. Uh, they Their client list includes huge names. Aflac, you know, the duck that sells the insurance. Aflac is a huge, is a customer of Infoblox. They've been around 20 years. If they've been around 20 years, they're not doing it wrong. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, if you <clears throat> if you want some assistance with your DNS, securing your DNS, or seeing what Infoblox can do for you to help with your DNS issues or IPAM management or other security solutions, give them a call. Tell them that you heard about Infoblox on the K12 Tech Talk podcast. We appreciate any referrals that you can give them because without our lovely sponsors, this podcast, well, I can't say this podcast wouldn't be here because I have nothing better to do for an hour, an hour every week, right? So uh, Mark might not be here. Um, no, Mark loves us. I, I kid. Uh, so yes, reach out to Infoblox and tell them that you heard about them from the K-12 Tech Talk podcast. Midwest Tech Talk, uh, the conference is Monday and Tuesday, uh, Sunday kickoff event. We're super excited about that coming up. And then the big news for me anyway, Chris probably doesn't care. Mark probably doesn't care. Well, I know Mark doesn't care because he's not going to join me in Baltimore. Um, <clears throat> the CI security agenda for their annual meeting, the MSISEC meeting in Baltimore uh, in August, early August has finally been released. My session is on Monday afternoon. If you want to come listen to me jabber on a panel about rolling out MFA in a K-12 environment, uh, I'd be happy to see you there and maybe I'll have a sticker or two if, if you come see me. Um, Sharyar, we, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to you not tonight. I, I loved hearing about your, you know, coming up from shadow IT to being in IT and being the CIO of LA Unified. That I just, I mean, I can't imagine that that's, that's really, really cool. Um, and then the, the, projects that you're taking on with interoperability and integration sound fascinating. Mark hinted that you might have a, a decent story or a good story about being shadow IT or what to worry about with shadow IT. 
no, it's just that, you know, after about, about 15, 20 years after I left the, the department, uh, I, I was, we were doing our collaborative, you know, project planning for our infrastructure upgrade and walk, I, I walk into the meeting and they distribute a report and I look at the report and that's a report that I wrote uh, 20 years ago oh and they were still using it. They were still using it tracking their projects. And I'm looking at it and I go, you know, you know, I mean, it exactly followed my format. I always put my name of my report on the lower left footer and the date on the upper right hand side. And it looked, and I knew it was my report. So it was quite a, I'm using to, to see wow. that. But, uh, that's how legacy code sticks around, you know. It, yeah. Does that system have all of its software updates and latest antivirus? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, I have no idea. But I uh, thank you very much for inviting me. This was really great. This is my first podcast. So, uh, what I wanted to mention was this is really valuable. Mark knows that we rely on each other a lot uh, across the industry to get help. You know, whether, you know, hey, are you using this software or what product have you used? Have you used this firewall or what? And we really rely on each other and their input. And I think having a venue like this and expanding that beyond 20, 30, you know, CIOs to a larger group is really valuable. And I think you're doing a great job and uh, really, really congratulations for starting this and uh, having this and uh, wish you some success. Well, we we appreciate you being on. We I I definitely appreciate the kind words. Um, we we probably got better after Mark joined us. Uh, Mark adds a little bit of professionalism. I think uh, Chris and I had a little bit too much fun. We still have a little bit too much fun with Mark. Uh, but no, it, you're exactly right. It, we I, I'm in a relatively um, we're it, it's funny where I am is kind of on the border border between urban and rural area. Um, the districts around me are relatively close to the same size that I am, 3,100 students. Um, the biggest one, I think, is uh, 7,000 or 11,000 students just up the road. But you're exactly right, Shariar. We we rely on each other a lot. There, there's probably not a week that goes by that I am not in communication or send out a group email to the tech directors in my county, let alone my state. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in a Discord channel with probably 150 tech directors from the around the state of Missouri, um, we help each other out during the day. Uh, and it, and it, and you're right. It's about, hey, what what product are you guys using that can solve this problem? Or are you guys seeing this weird issue right now too? Because a lot of us share the same internet provider. Um, so that network of just being able to reach out and, and tap somebody on the shoulder and say, hey, can you can can I run this by you real quick? Um, that it's invaluable. And that's, that's really what, when Chris and I started this and Corey started this, that's what we wanted this podcast to be because yeah, we're small schools. Mark, Mark's a relatively large school. We're, we are finding that we all see very, very similar problems. They're just on yeah. different scale. Um, so it, it's, yeah. we know there's common threads and and we know we're not the only three districts seeing this particular problem if we're seeing it then other people are seeing it so that's where we see the value in this and and we get to have fun for an hour a week doing it so um and we've met cool people we've met you shariar we've met mark um we've you know we've had some interaction on twitter with some pretty interesting people um we've got relationships relationships with really cool vendors um 
I never in my wildest dreams did I think it would be this popular. And it's it's cool. It's really, really neat. Well, I, I learned about you guys. I We have a chat group with Shire and a bunch of other districts. And, and I found you and you had done some ransomware stuff. And I found oh, it yeah. extremely valuable to hear somebody who's gone through a problem talk about both the technical as well as the personnel challenges of having to deal with this. And then I shared it to the group and I think I shared a couple more. I was like, Hey, they did a whole series on ransomware. Yeah. So we did like, I think four interviews with ransomware victims and I, we would do more that that's, we've only kind of stopped doing that because I've ran out of people I know that have had it happen. Um, And that's kind of, you know, when I hear of of a school in Missouri, that's had it happen. If I have a relationship with that person and they're willing to, to, come on and we can anonymize yeah. their name or whatever. Um, and they're willing to talk about it. You know, we're, we're going to have them on. So if, if you're out there listening and you've had something like that happen or a major DDoS event over several days um, and you want to come on, we can, uh, we can change your name, do whatever. We won't mention where you're from. We <laughs> love those interviews because <clears throat> let's face it. It's not a matter of when, or it's not a matter of if, but when, you know, that's, it's going to happen. Some we're going to yeah. get DDoS. We're going to have an event. We're going to have an outbreak. So um, the more we can learn from others and learn their their playbooks, their runbooks, the the better off we all are. So, well, Shariar, thanks, Shariar. yeah, thanks. Hey, Any closing? Always, yeah. <clears throat> always good to talk with you. And and uh, Shariar is as brilliant as he is humble. And so it's really nice to hear yeah, you guys are very somebody who who's not you know you think of a large district, you think of somebody in a suit. And and, and Shariar and, and everybody I've met from LA is is just incredible. It's such a cool group of people over there. So you're very, very cool kind. district. Thanks again, you guys. Take care, and uh, hopefully there'll be an opportunity for me to step in again and share yeah, some thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Well, anytime you want to come on, Shariar, we'll have you on. All right. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thanks Thank for coming you on, so Shariar. Much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.